Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher, and today we have on the line Joseph Sabo. And today he's going to help us talk about uh, this article from the Council at uh, spirited-tech.com, why I'm not an open theist. And he wrote an excellent uh, reply that is posted on God is Open. If you just click on the little blog link, it's the first thing that's going to pop up right now. I don't know why our newer stuff hasn't popped up recently, but uh, that should be the latest thing. Joe Stamo, would you like to say? Yeah, it's it's the will of providence. Would you like to say uh, hi? Hello, everybody. Yeah, I, I just kind of force my guests to say hi. Just like, you must say hi, hi now. It's and, super uh, awkward. <laughs> if you could address me as Nathan Peterson for the rest of the podcast, I'd be right. Nathan Patterson. He's mm-hmm. he's uh, he's the cousin of that famous actor who plays in those vampire movies. Yeah. <laughs> What's that guy's name? Uh, something Patterson. He's actually a good actor. <laughs> Robert, is it Robert? Robert Patterson? Robert yeah. Patterson. He's he's a good actor, so uh, I suggest watching The Rover if you want a weird post-apocalyptic movie. Plus, it's he brought weird. those he brought those water that water to those elephants too. That was nice of him. <laughs> water to his elephants. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen that one. It was all right. There was like uh, the end was kind of cool because the elephant, which get abused for the entire movie, movie finally decided that he'd had enough of it and went crazy and like, I mean, trampled some people and killed them, which I suppose is kind of sad, but yeah. At that point, point you're like, go elephant, go. It's like just, it's just to say it feels good in movies. I I show my kids movies. We have like a family movie night and it's, it's so interesting that my kids like intuitively understand justice. Like the, the bad people, they're, they're happy when the bad guy dies and they're like, good, that's what that person deserved. And uh, right. I, I can imagine uh, some parents being like, no one deserves death in any circumstance and we shouldn't want death on anyone. It's like these kids intuitively understand concepts of justice. Yeah, but I have kind of the opposite problem. Like Eden had some kid at school spitting on her and I was like, you need to punch him in the throat. And she's like, I don't want to. I'm going to get in trouble. So. <laughs> Uh, one of my sister's friends was having troubles with her, her kid uh, in daycare. And this other kid just always hitting her and stuff like that. And uh, she was divorced. And her, her father, um, he finally just told the daughters, just punch the kid. Just punch the kid in the face. And uh, she's she's telling her kid, no, no, don't, don't resort to violence. Don't do it. Uh, violence doesn't solve anything. But as soon as her kid punched that kid back, they had no problems from that day on. <laughs> Never again. Right. Never again. So it worked. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. violence is the answer. I mean, that it shouldn't good. be the it shouldn't be the first response. But it's like if you if they're not getting it, you know, I don't know. You got to do what you got to do. Sometimes so. it works. Sometimes yeah. it works. All right. Well, we'll go back to the back to the article here. So our plan today is to kind of go through why I'm not an open theist. This article by the sire, and we'll call this guy sire. At first, I didn't uh, read this guy's name, what he called himself, and then I was reading your article, and you're like, I'm going to refer to him as Sire. I'm like, is that is that like mocking him, or is that just like a, a weird thing? But no, the guy calls himself the Sire, so we will call him Sire. Could you, could you scroll down all the way to the bottom of his article first? There's like yeah. a picture. There's a, there's a picture. He's got a What's picture. The, did you see this yet? This there like James Bond guy. Oh no! That, he looks, 
He looks like uh, David Hogg. <laughs> I have no idea who that is. Well, it's a James Bond picture with some other person's face. Oh, you think that's the guy who actually wrote it? Oh, he just photoshopped it. Okay. I thought that was a picture of like some random dude doing a fake James Bond pose. I didn't even put those together. Yeah, but it looks like David Hogg, that uh, that kid from Florida. <laughs> oh, yeah. So maybe this is David Hogg's alternative account. He's not an open theist. No. No, but uh, anyways, we'll, we'll go back over here. And you and I... We, we had some discussion already about when I was reading your article and there's some of the things you said where we might have a little bit different of takes on it. And, you know, that's that's something you're going to expect in open theism, that different open theists are approaching things from different directions. And so there's going to be disagreements, right? Yeah. Um, so it's it's a very free thinking theology i think i mean all of us for the most part have independently come to it i think some maybe is from you know reading a book about from boyd or something like that but that always starts with asking questions so you know we don't have a systematic theology that we must adhere to so like you talked about if if there's a verse maybe you interpret it a little bit differently than me and that's okay you know if anything it just goes to show that uh, different interpretations can be valid and that kind of is the nature of text in general is we all have our own perspectives and our own level of education and things like that so you know we're not going to see everything differently and that's one thing that really bugs me every time I read an article that's um, talking painting open theism in a negative light it's always like a lumping situation. They're like, open theists believe this, open theists believe this. And and for some, yeah, sure, you know, but there is no open theist interpretation of Romans 9 or Romans 8. I mean, if you ask six different people in the group, you probably get four different interpretations at least, you know, and then it's just a matter of, okay, well, which one here actually makes more sense in context with, you know, how the language works and all that stuff. So, so I think it's out- funny. Uh, throwing out one example, John Sanders in one of his books, he he's talking about Psalms 139, and he says, okay, so here's the possible interpretations of whatever verse uh, you formed me in the womb, and he lists like six, and uh, you know there you know there could be six different ways to take that, and some open theists take uh, one way, and some other take the other way, but like when uh, Norman Geisler responds to him, I think it's Norman Geisler in. Uh, what what what's his uh god's lesser glory i think it is he only responds was, to one of them <laughs> and he thinks he thinks he swear uh geisler yeah it was bruce Ware who's god's yeah. lesser glory but uh he only responds to one of them and he's like i'm just gonna take this one it's like he offered you six <laughs> different ways and you're just responding to one ah so. and that's pretty that's pretty normal i mean you know, even if you pick up just like just look at three different commentaries on Bible Hub on the same verses, and yeah, there's going to be some stuff in there that's the same, but you know, there'll be some differences. So, mm-hmm. for everyone out there who's not an open theist, if you want to write an article or a blog post painting negative open theism in a negative light, then I mean, by all means, do so, but don't assume that we all think the same or all hold to the same interpretation on everything because we don't. Yeah, that's a it's a really good point because. Just refuting one open theist take doesn't refute all of open theism. Right. 
All right, so let's let's go over what this guy says. Uh, he says uh, open theism usually can be divided into two. Some are open theists for philosophical reasons, another for exegetical reasons. And I would generally agree with this that there's this is it's a spectrum. That uh, there's those super philosophical ones. You got uh, on that end maybe your William Haskers and uh, Thomas J. Ords are over there, who they they like to focus on. The philosophy how do how do these things work you know randomness how does randomness factor in and you see very little biblical exegesis in those types of work whereas on the other hand you have someone like walter boogerman where basically all he does is he reads the text and tries to talk about what the text is saying in context yeah i, I took a little issue with the statement just because I think sometimes this gets kind of blown out of proportion as far as it, it can be painted like there's two separate camps within open theism. And I don't look at it that way. It's like two different ways to approach the same situation. Like if you believe in creation for scientific reasons, or if you just solely believe in creation because that's what the Bible teaches, you believe in creation. It's just two different pathways to come to the same conclusion. Mm hmm. There's, there seems to be some sort of uh, a spectrum, and that's what uh, I, I've focused on. And uh, let's go real quick and look at the spectrum map that I kind of drew out. And uh, it, it, it works fairly well for kind of categorizing or conceptualizing the spectrum of, of who's yeah, where, sure. how, how they think, you know, what kind of influence they have. You know, open theists are accused of uh, reading Harsh Sorn and Whitehead. And, uh, you know, a lot of these open theists that I deal with, never heard of the guys. You know, Jesse Morell, I doubt he's ever read Alfred Whitehead. I promise he hasn't. Promise he hasn't. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and we know Ord. No, not Ord. Yeah, Ord's read him. Um, Boyd's read Whitehead. Yeah. He did a doctoral thesis on it or whatever. Uh, so, so there is a spectrum. There is a range of influences and there's a range of beliefs. But let's see, we're going to kind of uh, move forward and go philosophical open theism is his uh, subcategory. This movement comes from the idea that propositions directed towards the future have no truth value because the proposition has no grounding and the future is pure contingency. What's your take on that? So as kindly as I can put this, a lot of these sentences, and the way that thoughts are constructed in here is difficult for me to understand what is trying to be said. Um, however, could you pull that quote back up for a second? For yeah. Me? So the movement comes from the idea the propositions directed toward the future have no truth value because the proposition has no grounding and the future is pure contingency. All right. So I don't know anyone that believes the future is pure contingency. For the future to be pure contingency, that would mean that there is no settled certain future events at all in, in total. So, <clears throat> for example, Jesus might not return which if you want to have that position, you can have that position. I'm not saying that I'm not bringing that out to try to make somebody feel some kind of way and they don't want to, you know, adhere to that or whatever. But so God ultimately could lose, you know, in, in the, the struggle, so to speak. 
Um, and this kind of gets a little a little difficult for me to conceptualize because to say the future is pure contingency, it's like, well, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that there might be a time where I hit my thumb with a hammer and it doesn't hurt, you know, like the nerves don't send the response or something. But prior to that, like my nervous state was completely fine. So, so here, uh, uh, here's how I'm reading that is, uh, in, uh, normal, in normal Molinism, uh, you have every single event is an object and not, ju not just a loose concept. So Christ returning, um, unless there's, there's, uh, some sort of substance to that. Like he's going to return on XYZ's date in this fashion and everything that's related to that event is, is detailed. It's not like a loose thing that could be fulfilled in multiple different ways. Maybe he comes down at eight o'clock. Maybe he comes down at eight Oh one. Maybe he comes down at eight Oh two. So although things about the future can be decided, it's not, it doesn't have a truth value because it could be fulfilled in multiple ways. It's not an object that's, that's set and immutable. Does that make sense? Okay. So you think that that's what he's saying or? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think, uh, you know, while God has plans and definite plans and those plans are not contingent on anything that the, the event itself doesn't have a true or false value because it's, it's future. And okay, so sure. I think right. that's how they're using the language here rather okay. than rather than how we say something's done unilaterally or right. if something's done uh, non-contingently. It's like it's it's non-contingent that I go to work and earn a living, but that doesn't mean the event is set in stone. There's sure. multiple ways that could be accomplished. Right. Which and, it'd be good to maybe I mean, I responded to this to the best of my ability and. To be honest, I had to kind of guess at some points because I'm not really exactly sure what's being said because maybe we're not using the words the same, you know, things like that. So it would right. be good for sure to like sit down with these people or whoever this guy is at some point, maybe. Alan um, Rhoda, uh, he, he he lists uh, four different types of open theism. And this is quoted in the Wikipedia article on open theism. Voluntary initiates. Initiates just means that you don't have all knowledge, that you're you could gain knowledge in some capacity. So voluntary means that God chooses not to have all knowledge. Involuntary niscience, that's saying that God doesn't have the ability to know all things in the future. So that's kind of what's being described here is that uh, it's involuntary because these, these facts don't exist to be known. It's not something that someone has access to, as opposed to the voluntary niscience where there are facts just that God himself doesn't have access to them. Non-bivalent omniscience, the future is athletically open and therefore epistemologically open for God because propositions about the future contingents are neither true nor false. I guess that would be more like uh, what he's describing there. And then bivalent omniscience, the future is athletic, alethically, what are we? Alethically. Alethically. The future is alethically open and therefore epistemologically open for God because propositions asserting of future contingents that they will obtain or that they will not obtain are both false. Instead, what is true is that they might or might not obtain. Greg Boyd holds this position. And so there, there seems to be four different categories. Uh, I, it looks like to, to me there's two different categories which can be 
known in two different ways. I don't know. Maybe so something it, like that. So taking what you said earlier, it seems like he's taking all four of these different views and just kind of putting them into one category. And he's labeling, labeling that category, the future is contingent events, therefore it can't be known, right? Which would be, uh, I suppose, either, I mean, it could be either of those, any of those, I suppose. Um, so I've, I fall into the involuntary nescience category. Because I believe that truths about future contingents are in principle unknowable. So if there's a possibility that an event might or might not happen, it's not within the realm of knowable facts whether or not that event is going to happen. Now that does assign, that does not assign a truth value to that event. So, so this is kind of not great in that involuntary nescience also borrows from bivalent omniscience to a certain degree. Because I don't look at, for example, if what shirt I'm going to wear tomorrow for work. Let's just take that as an example. I have a, a group of shirts that I could choose from, and I might or might not pick any one of them. So I would say that which shirt I'm going to choose to wear tomorrow because I have not made the choice to wear it is in principle unknowable because the choice doesn't exist yet to be known. Mm -hmm. It also, my view also borrows from bivalent omniscience in that I don't say, I will not wear this shirt tomorrow, I will wear this shirt tomorrow. So I don't look at my future choices as yes or no propositions. I look at them as might or might not propositions. So that's me personally, and in, in the view that I've come to hold. Um, there are a lot of people within the open camp that would look at things differently. Greg Boyd's view, for example, is that... Um, God does know the future. He just doesn't know for certain what will happen. So, for example, he knows which shirt I will wear tomorrow because he knows what all my choices are. So what he knows is within the realm of, you know what I mean? Like if, if you have all the shirts you could wear in a box and you know what's in the box, then you know, you don't know which one I'm going to pick, but you know which one I will in a way. So... Yeah, it, it seems to me that uh, this this whole way of categorizing truth and non-truth re relies very heavily on Platonic concepts of the world, where where each each thing each thing is its own object, and that object is ascribed properties. One of those properties is true, false. It's a very mechanical way of looking at the world, uh, and so maybe 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 I'd categorically reject what's going on in some of these definitions. Yeah. And also pure contingency, use the word like pure with contingency. That sounds like chance, like everything is left up to chance sort of. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't believe that. I think that there's, I think that there's events that are future that haven't taken place that God has determined and settled that they will happen. I think that there's an element of um, causality to life. You know, and I also think that we have free will. I'm not a compatible compatibilist, you know, but if something's alive, it's going to die. You know, I mean, that's just nature. That's we see that all the time, you know. So right. to say that the future is pure contingency to me, that bothers me because I wouldn't say that. I would say that the future, which to be clear, does not exist, will be a mix of events that were chosen and were ordained or determined in some sense. Yeah, I and think what that, 
what that uh, mix is. I have no idea. Sorry, yeah, I'm getting I, a little long-winded. No, that space. makes sense. So what happens a lot in, the, in the, these discussions is conflation. And so you have a very philosophical use of the word contingency, and then you have a very normal use of the word contingent or non-contingent. And so I, it, a lot of times these, these conversations get muddied up and because the definitions are being switched or not, not being consistent between the participants in the, in the conversation. So yes, God can have definite plans that unilaterally take place that are not contingent, which don't have a truth value. It's not an object with a truth value. I think both you and I hold that position. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good statement. That sentence was good. Yes. So it seems like he um, he understands a little bit about some open theistic beliefs. Not all open theists take this belief. Um, typically, open theism could be characterized as God will be acquiring new knowledge in the future. New propositions that he didn't know before. That's typically how people would define open theism. Some, yeah, something I, I think like so. It, it's always about God's knowledge, it seems like, too. It's either God doesn't know. Normally, it's just God doesn't know. That's so, some open theists, though. Some open theists say, oh, because uh, we have free will, that requires that God not have the knowledge. So they kind of shift it to the free will aspect, and that's that's their focus. I I would advise against that. I would advise just sticking with who God is in himself and not trying to rely on our free will as the defense for open theism. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so enough on that sentence. That leaves humans with ultimate choice over the future. What? <laughs> The premise, what? the premise, the conclusion does not follow from the premise at all. <laughs> oh, it's like uh, people are like, if if we have free will, then God is powerless. <laughs> like, yeah. What are you guys talking about? It's like, even... I'm going to exercise my free will right now to have a million dollars in my bank account. Done. <laughs> done. Done. I mean, that's not that's not how this works at all. You know, it's like you try that with the police, you know, <laughs> You can't arrest me. I got free will. Ah, right. you're thwarted. And now police are fairly powerless. You know, in the grand scheme of things, they're just people like you and I. Uh, but they could really thwart us, even though we have free will. They they might have ultimate sovereignty. They got, they got the guns and the police helicopters and the jails. And so I think their sovereignty wins out, typically. They got them judges, too. Those judges. Yeah. Oh, those judges. I think statements like this just come from a poor understanding of what, what free will is. And that's somewhat understandable because, again, you ask four different people, you might get four different answers. You know, which is why, which is why it's important if you're going to have a discussion about something, you got to establish terms and stick to them. So I, I think it's pretty funny that uh, Jesus in the garden, he says, not my will, but yours be done, God. And so... Where, where where do we factor that in? That sometimes God's will is done. Sometimes Jesus's will, which is different than God's will, uh, conflicts with that. And sometimes Jesus's will wins out. Then you have normal humans whose will apparently sometimes wins out. Uh, wills have to be balanced. It seems there's, there's conflicts of will. 
And, you know, there's a lot of compromise that's made. And uh, God wins out in the areas he wants to win out in. Uh, no, no joke. It's not... It's not up for debate that he's he's going to win out if he's if there's a conflict of wills, but uh, there it, there's a balancing act, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we can't. I cannot use my will to override God's. Like, if God wants to strike me down right now and I don't want him to do that, I lose every time. You know, like he is powerful enough and wise enough, and able enough that once he determines to do a thing he is able to bring it about and he is able to bring other wills and subjection to his which is what repentance is all about and walking out the christian life we submit our lives and our wills to the ideal of how we ought to be and we strive to be more like christ and walk with god and do right and make good decisions you know mm -hmm. so, so <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, no, you go for it. Go for it. Well, so I mean, we just see this all the time, you know, the one will coming under another, you know, it's if my daughter want, doesn't want to go to bed and I want her to go to bed while well, her will is to stay up, my will is for her to go to bed, I win. It might take me a little while, but she's going to go <laughs> yeah. to sleep, you know, and that doesn't mean she doesn't have free will. She still had a will to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, but your will's it's conflicted. Just that mine was more powerful, right? And then uh, God sometimes uh, inv in involves Himself in coercion to get His will done. Like yeah. uh, Jonah go to Nineveh, He's like, "Cheese it! I gotta run over this way instead." And then uh, He He intervenes. He He recaptures him. He forces him, uh, you know, to put him on the right path. So there, sometimes a little coercion has to be used to get your will done. Yeah, because we're hard headed and we're stupid. We don't want to listen. All right. So he says this. They also tend to think that Calvinism, Arminianism, and Molinism leaves God with being the sole culpable agent for the evil, those evils the world contains. I don't know where he got that. I don't either. And I don't know what that has to do with anything that he said. And I also don't think that Calvinism, Arminianism, and Molinism leave God with being the sole culpable agent for all the evils that the world contains. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's an argument for Calvinism. Oh, well, there's there's definitely an argument for Calvinism. I mean, if you agree with their theology, sure. Unless you go with the the whole only Adam had free will, and then after that, you know, you could take that route, I suppose. Typically, but, the moral culpability that Arminianism and Molinism ascribes to God is the type of culpability that King David he kills Uriah the Hittite. Um, so he knew about the circumstances. He arranged some of the circumstances, and uh, it's like a proxy sin. He didn't he didn't directly commit it. He just kind of orchestrated the circumstances to make it come about. And typically, that's the same culpability that Arminians have because God knows every single detail that will ever happen. Yet He enables the world to move on as as normal. Yeah, you. But there's still ways around. I mean, first of all, you can't say that he's the sole culpable agent because in Arminianism and Molinism, you still have free creatures making decisions, right? So that's on the table for sure. Right. But and he, he does the, share some culpability. God. I would, I would say some if you accept the fact that a different world could have come about where there was less evil and more good, right? So... So if you hold to, so for example, in Molinism, if you assume that this was the best possible world that God could have actualized with free creatures in it, 
then I don't feel like he's culpable in any sense. Well, unless unless you think not creating is better than creating, which well, you could be somewhat culpable even if you did for the greatest good. So if I'm a general in war, I'm okay. kind of culpable for sending a unit to his death, even though that would ultimately win me the war, right? Sure, but I wouldn't look at that as a moral negative, I guess. So I guess I'm not speaking. But it is. It is. It is still pain responsible and sure. suffering. Yeah. So, yeah. like, even on open theism, I was at the, the SBL conference, the Society of Biblical Literature, and I went to the, there was one of Ord's friends who wants to uh, assign no culpability at all to God in any case. He holds this non-course of love position. And responding was Terrence uh, Fretheim. Fretheim? I think I'm saying that correctly now. I know I always, I always say it wrong, it's, but it's, uh, Terrence Fretheim was there. And Terrence Fretheim responded, and he's like, you know what? God, God has some culpability, right, uh, in creating this world and in, in the management of this world for the evils that occur in this world. And, and Fretheim, of course, is an open theist. And even he is ascribing some sort of culpability for God for the operation and function of the world. Yeah, I think so. I think he just changed my mind a little bit now that I'm thinking about it. So that's good. Yeah. So like Job in the book of Job, Job talks about, hey, God, you are shirking your duties. You, Your duty is proper management and function of this world. And all these evil things happen, like these these evil guys, um, they, they get rich and they go down to their grave in peace and their, their children prosper. So you are not judging as you should judge. So even Job is ascribing some culpability to God for the evil that happens. And, and Job's an open theist. And so it's not, I wouldn't say open theism absolves God of all culpability for the things that happen. Although some open theists would like to make that argument. I wonder if you could relieve some of that culpability, though, if you bring into account that God is always working to bring to bring good out of evil, but also to to thwart evil before it becomes evil. Like if you're, say, you're a CEO of a company, and okay, you're going to be responsible for the actions of your employees, but if you also are working with say you have like a troublesome employee who's always causing problems, right? And then you have um, other employees that you place around them and you give them special training and you give them all these tools in order to try to help this other individual and you try to, you know, restrict his access to certain things that maybe he's having problems with. I wonder if, if that's enough, if your ultimate goal is to, to bring that bad employee up to a, the status of a good employee, if that's enough to sort of uh, relieve the CEO of culpability. I'm just thinking out loud here, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I would take the Terrence Fretheim position personally that, you know, because you are a manager of a corporation, maybe you're a general of an army. Um, in the military, they have this very, very acute sense of culpability that if there's problems anywhere in the military, uh, that it's the commander's fault. And so the CEOs in private companies, if there's problems in the corporation, although the CEO might not have caused it because of his status as over that corporation, 
it's it's a little bit his fault. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not trying to say that it's not maybe a little, not a little bit. I'm just trying to get that culpability down as small yeah. as I can. That's all. So just a little bit. Just a little just bit. A, I mean, just like a like a dot. So uh, this is an interesting conversation because he's trying to say that uh, open theism tries to relieve God of culpability. Some open theists do. But some like Terence Fretheim, uh, they admit that uh, even open theist, in open theism, God has some culpability for the evil that occurs. And it's not... We just had... We just had two open theists having that same discussion. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. Um, so someone says, oh, you just want to try to absolve God of culpability or you want to uh, give man free will. And that's the, the, your philosophical reasons. Open theists have these debates among themselves. So you know who you're arguing with and know where they're coming from or else you're probably responding to the wrong person. Yeah. So exegetical, exegetical open theism, and I do like these categories. There's some some open theists who are more focused on reading the text than others. Like uh, there was a conversation that Ord had with one guy. He asked to proofread his 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 book, uh, and uh, I, I'm not going to give the guy's name or anything. But the guy was talking to me, and he's like, "I was talking to Ord, and I said uh, your conclusions don't follow. What what about this verse over here?" And then Ord responded, well, that verse is just not useful for this. <laughs> so there's there's some people. <laughs> you what? That's, outstand- that's outstanding. Yeah, it's it's like, so some, some open theists use the Bible differently than others. There's just, they come to the Bible and they see it as a different type of text and to be used differently. And you got Boyd has his uh, Christocentric hermeneutic. Everything is reinterpreted in light of Jesus. And, uh, you know, I, I don't blame him for any of these guys' positions. I don't blame Ord. I don't blame uh, Boyd or anything like that. But just know what they're doing with the Bible. Know how they yeah. see the Bible. Because that will that will shape how they think about open theism, how they think about culpability, how they think about the nature of the future and the nature of God. I think there's a healthy, healthy balance, too, between, I mean, obviously we keep the text as the foundation. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's a healthy relationship between philosophy and text. I mean, philosophy is not bad. The text isn't bad. You know, they're both tools. Granted, one tool of the Bible is should be more prominent than the other, but there's nothing wrong with using them together. I try to use both of them together. So he says this, these <clears throat> positions are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I think there's a spectrum. All right, let's go down. Open theist. The exegetical open theist thinks the Bible clearly and in a qualified way states that God does not know the future. Well, maybe, but let's go look at his proof text. And uh, this proof text, uh, I, I think I've written some articles on this. So why this is, he, he grabs a really bad proof text that uh, some open theists do use. So I don't blame him there, but it's not a proof text I use. He This is coming from Jeremiah. There's three instances in which Jeremiah says that something did not enter God's mind. And they built high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Himmon to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And if anyone pulls these verses and do a te- text search on the God is Open Facebook, 
page, there's there's long conversations with Greek scholars, uh, Timothy McMahon, and I think my dad even gets in on the action. He 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 reads uh, Hebrew fluently. I'm not I'm not quite the Hebrew scholar, so uh, rely on my dad for some of this. But uh, so Tim McMahon and my dad talk about this verse and how this guy's right, and you talk about that too. Yeah, this is not a proof text for open theism at all. If the way that that well, reads, maybe is, maybe it is a little bit, but but go for it. I'll, okay, I'll give you a little bit, but the way that this reads is probably literally the worst translation in the history of translate. Well, I won't say in the history of translations, but it's terrible. Um, and the and then he goes into this thing about how to enter one's mind is more about an inclination and a disposition. It's not knowledge coming in and morally acceptable this and that. It's like none of that is necessary. We don't even have to read that. The text above, what is being conveyed, is that Yahweh is saying, I never commanded them to burn their kids. He's not saying, I never thought that they could do this. This is, wow, this is such a revelation. I didn't know. None of that is going on. He's saying they're doing something I did not command them to do. It's cut and dry. Yeah, so this is not about God never before thinking that they would ever sacrifice their kids. It's God saying, I never commanded you guys to sacrifice your kids to me or to false gods, anything like that. But but how this 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 proof text is useful, Calvinists think that God decreed everything. And this is saying that God did not command anyone to do this thing. And so you could use this against Calvinists who think that everything is by divine decree, determination, predestination, flowing from the command of God's mind. And this is saying, no, some things happen that are against God's will, that are against God's command, that never entered his mind to command. Yeah, but then they're going to play the secret... Yeah. Hidden, double, secret hidden double will card and then you're like okay well i don't have nothing for that you say well i guess language has no meaning so i i guess um what would it ha- what would it have to say so that that's always a good thought experiment when dealing with calvinists what sequence of words in this situation would would ex- would say what i'm trying to explain here rather than your idea of this double secret hidden will and they won't have an answer it doesn't. No. There's no sequence of words in the English language which could ever falsify their belief. No, it's not happening. So the, another way that this this text is useful for open theism is God is showing utter disgust, surprise. Uh, he's horrified about what his people do, and so just the tone of this sounds like it's a shocking surprise, just tonally. And you know, it's it's not. It's not a proof text for open theism. Like this is definitely God is being surprised, getting new information in his head. But just the shock and the disgust in this suggests um, that this wasn't divinely in his mind from all eternity that these things would happen. Yeah, that's Which, that's a good point. I, I guess I never really looked at it like that. I don't deal too much with Calvinists. I learned my lesson. So, <laughs> yeah. So so a lot of times. Um, Things can still be open theistic texts, but they're not going to be proof texts. You're not going to turn to them to argue argue your case uh, because there, there's wiggle room 
that uh, the other person could wiggle out on. They could say, oh, it might be like watching a movie. You know what's going to happen, but then you show the disgust anyways. You're like, you know every single detail, every single proposition that will come true, and you have it at the forefront of your mind from all eternity, and then you also are disgusted when it actually happens. That doesn't seem like a reasonable argument to me, but to them, it seems reasonable. And so they have a reasonable out. So you're not, you're kind of wasting your time by turning to this proof text. Yeah. I wonder if God is outside of time and all knowledge is just in his mind continually. Is he like always disgusted and happy at the same time about everything? Yes. Some Arminians uh, describe it like God is a pole. And so the more we sin, the farther we get away from this pole. And then the text represents God as getting more angry or more sad, although God's not changing. He's stationary, but our movement determines his disposition to us. And so that's one that's way. Not, they... <laughs> that's not convoluted and weird. Yeah, but they, they have to go through these, uh, uh, what are they, mitigating strategies in order to get the yeah. text to be to actually work and function correctly. That seems like a lot of work, man. <laughs> so he's right here. This is not a good open theistic proof text. Don't turn to this in, in arguments to try to prove your case, open theists, because they'll say it's about the command. He never thought about commanding people to sacrifice children to him or other gods. And that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, they operate this method. This is back to the text that uh, the guy wrote. Secondly, they operate this method very inconsistently. What? Yeah, yeah, I, I'd give them that. Open theists tend to think that God is immaterial and that the statements that attribute physical parts to God are anthropomorphic. Some, some open theists do. But, but you meet open theists who believe that God is corporal. And uh, that's a position that we need to consider. That might be more of a, you might be attacked on those grounds. If oh, they're, uh, <laughs> they're getting attacked on those grounds. <laughs> yeah. So uh, individuals who ascribe corporal bodies to, to God are, they do exist um, and they need to be taken seriously. But I think the difference though is in, in how language works and functions, you know, uh, the, God's wings protect us. God's hand uh, rules over us. God's hand holds us. Uh, hands are very, that they invoke a lot of uh, imagery, a lot of, a lot of thematic, thematic uh, motifs, motifs of power. Wings are protection. Wings are flight. Wings are, are above us. You know, angelic, angelic vision, stuff like that. And so they have metaphorical meaning, whereas emotions they tend to not have metaphorical meaning. You, what does God repents mean? And so you might be a Norman Geisler and you might say, oh, repent is a metaphor that indicates change of process. Really? It's just a change of process that God doesn't actually repent. You just made that up. There's, you're not going to go find an, a text anywhere else except for the Bible that you're going to ascribe that metaphorical meaning to repentance. Uh, it's just it's a way to dismiss what's actually going on in the text, and it destroys the character motivations in the text. The narrative is dependent on the repentance, God's repentance in Genesis 6. God sees man has become wicked. Uh, God uh, repents of making man, 
which invokes this new action of destroying all of mankind. It gives motivation to character actions in narrative. And if you're saying, oh, all of that's not true, he's not actually repenting, he's not actually considering these things that he sees, well, then it destroys what's going on there. You're making the entire story like a myth to explain a change in process that's eternally decided. And it, it, it it's not really true to the text. So if you have a, a text, there's going to be a meta-narrative to it. There'll be an overarching idea that's trying to be conveyed by the author to the reader. <clears throat> In the case that you provided, it's that God repented of his action, you know, and took steps to correct the problem. So when you take the idea that's trying to be conveyed and you demote it to some lesser nonsense some metaphorical thing you're not doing justice to the text so in these areas where it talks about god having physical parts we have to ask ourselves is the author trying to tell me that god has a body or is he is this language being used to convey some other idea and that's just a good principle to have when you read any book whether it's it doesn't matter what the book is. You know, you should always be asking, what is the author trying to tell me? You know? And there's, there's some places in the Old Testament, especially where you can't deny that a physical body is being described. That God is walking in the garden, in the cool of the breeze. You know, he, he's walking. That's what it describes. Uh, he sits down with Abraham and eats in uh, Genesis uh, 18. And so what they'll do is they'll admit that these things, because the narrative forces there to be a body we're reading a narrative and there's a body involved they'll say oh that's uh you know it's it's an appearance of christ in the old testament so they intuitively know when things are quote-unquote anthropomorphic or metaphor metaphorical i think uh, metaphorical is the better description of a lot of these uh, sayings about god's wings are going to protect us things like that those are those are metaphors they their imagery to evoke emotions and concepts that we already have mapped wings mean protection hands mean power but in those narratives they have no choice but to assign a body to yahweh and then they they and then they have to explain it away yeah does god have a body well people and people say oh trinity and jesus had a body right so they have to admit god has a body right they they have to do it and so i don't understand this this whole hostility to bodies even when they admit that uh, jesus had a body and then they admit that there are certain times in the old testament where the narrative demands a body and then they criticize open theists for <laughs> taking things uh inconsistently no we use narrative should i trigger trinitarians here or no <laughs> uh well that might be a different uh different podcast but but here's the thing they intuitively know when an idiom is being used and yeah. when actual description is being used in a narrative and it's functioning within a narrative and can't be explained away. Yeah. And for the record, I mean, Yahweh might have a body. I, I don't know. You know, I haven't right. been up there. I have no idea. My only point that I was trying to say is like, if you said something like that, people are coming for your head. Like, you know, it's a wrap yeah. for you. <laughs> <clears throat> Sounds good. He says, third, this is back to the article. Third, there are texts that teach God knows everything that has or will ever happen. What? <laughs> I 
then why are we why are we so stupid that we just haven't read these texts? Man, maybe I don't know how to read. Okay, so there are texts that teach that God knows everything that has or will ever happen. So that's our standard, and then we'll read his verses, and then we'll say, did his verse just say that God knows everything that has or will ever happen? Okay, here's his first verse, Isaiah forty six nine through ten. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Not so much. So right? did did God knows everything? So let's 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 look through here for any words that are synonyms with everything. Everything, everything. Um, um I'm I got not. I got yeah. I'm I'm coming up blank as well. Is the sequence of words "God knows everything" actually in there somewhere? <laughs> I don't think so. There, there's no there's no phrase in here that says God knows everything or God declares everything. Did God declare everything? Uh, the end from the beginning. Did God declare? I do this little wiggle. Who did he declare it to? Because he didn't declare it to me. I don't know. Do you know? No. You so. So what this is talking about is God says what he's going to do before he does it so that when he does it, people will know he did it. He didn't declare exactly. everything. He didn't, he didn't declare like my cat always like throws up. I got a stupid cat that throws up on my carpet. He didn't declare to me that my cat was going to throw up on XYZ date or whatever. Something well, like he that. Might have, he might have for you. That's possible. He, he might have declared it to some other person maybe. Mm -hmm. And they're like, why are you telling me about this guy's uh, cat throwing up? That's a that's a weird prophecy, and uh, he says, "I'm telling you, <laughs> for the reason that my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please." Why are you making this guy's cat throw up on his carpet? Then why are you telling me, God? <laughs> uh, it's it's sure. a silly example, but people they they think that this verse is talking about everything that ever happens, right. which is just absolutely not the case because that would be ridiculous. Who's God declaring all this to? <laughs> so I I think what's and I had to just guess at a lot because the interpretation that these verses will teach that God knows everything that has or will ever happen is incredibly general. And I don't do well with generalities in that sense. But when it says, I make known the end from the beginning, I, I think that what people think when they read this is time. That God's saying, I know, I make known the end of time from the beginning of time, or I make known the end of the age from the beginning of creation. And yeah. that's not what's being conveyed. He's saying, I make known the end and then of my purpose, right? Because my purpose is what's going to stand and I'm going to do all that I please. Yeah. I make known the end of my purpose from the beginning. So from the time I plan to do a thing, I'm going to tell you what it is that I'm going to do, like you said, so that when it happens, you're going to know I'm the one that did this. And it wasn't these false gods. <laughs> it's funny, Calvinists and uh, even Arminians, they think that God's just declaring things into the void that no one hears. He's he's making known to no one. He's just shouting it out, and no one hears it. No one records it, and he just declared into the void. It just it's just out there floating, and and no one's the recipient of these declarations. It was painful to hear James White just like repeating this over and over in his debate with Bob Enyart. So right. I I, th I think that this this word declare we might have to add to the words that Calvinists hijack because you declare things to people Calvinists hijack it and they say this is God's 
immutable purpose that he declares into the void eternally to no one in particular. And so that, that that's a weird concept to me. I agree. So that, here's his next uh, proof text, Isaiah 40. We're still in the Isaiahs, so he's quoting two of the Isaiahs in the same context. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? <laughs> whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and whom taught him the right way? Who has taught him knowledge and showed him the path of understanding? Okay, so is this a text that teaches that God knows everything that has or will ever happen? Uh, I don't think so. I think that this is teaching that God is wise and he's more wise than anyone else. And he knows what's best, and he doesn't need your instruction in that regard. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not seeing anything about God not being able to acquire propositional knowledge from observing new events. I got nothing. I, I see this about people talking and interacting with God and not teaching Him something new, right? I, I definitely read that in there. That's absolutely in there. It's almost but, like that's the point of the of the scripture <laughs> it's, it's almost like it yeah it's almost like that's the exact point that uh you don't think that you're better than god and you could just teach him something and uh you're you are you are the guy and that god has to go to you and ask you right from wrong god's god you know you, you're not going to teach him right from wrong does that mean uh that in what is it first kings 22 when he queries the angels for how to kill ahab is that a falsification of this? I don't think so. No. It's not about teaching God knowledge. It's about offering God options to consider, and then uh, God picks the one that he wants. So, Right. So, so for that to falsify this verse, I think you'd have to have that situation, and then there would have to be another person that God goes to, and he says, these were all the suggestions I was given. What do you think I should do? And then go with whatever that person said. Yeah, something like uh, where God is the subservient in that situation. I think this yeah. is all about positional status. And I, I don't I don't think this is a lot of times language doesn't work hard and fast where you read something and that's like a metaphysical certainty. There's a big discussion on the God is open Facebook group right now about Jesus saying, uh, listen up, Capernaum, um, if Sodom was given the same things as you, uh, they would have repented long ago and they, they would still be here till today. I don't think he's talking about metaphysical certainties. I don't think he's talking about, uh, you know, he's giving them an impromptu lesson about uh, counterfactuals. I think instead is what what's happening is he's using a rhetorical device. He's using rhetorical hyperbole to insult them and to declare against them. <laughs> and so reading everything as if it's 100 uh, percent uh, like propositionally accurate rather than generalities or hyperboles, that'd be a mistake. One other example that just came up recently in the group is Paul says, I became all things to all men. Well, did he become all things? He became a beach ball. He came up, became a prostitute. He probably became a little kitty cat or a cosplayer of a kitty cat. And that's not even what he's talking about. It's, it's a hyperbole. People, right. people often talk in very harsh generalizations. They talk in hyperbole. Because, you know, we're human beings and that, that's how we talk. That's how we function. And it's, it's, not, it's not something to uh, just to assume doesn't exist in our language. If Paul became all things to all men, then like he became a fish to you. <laughs> to, to, to you, right? I mean, you're part of all men. 
And the and fish is part of all things, so what's the problem? I don't have the passage offhand, but doesn't he use language like this in relation to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, Who is like you? Stuff like that. But uh, So, yeah, yeah you can understand this. So, nothing in this suggests that God knows all propositions and doesn't gain any propositional knowledge. This verse seems very person-centric. This is about God and his relation and status to other people. And then uh, on top of that, there's there's no indication whether it's uh, hyperbolic, whether it's a generality, or whether it's uh, a metaphysical absolute. You know, God can't acquire any knowledge from anyone. And what type of knowledge? This seems to be very focused on righteousness, that someone can't teach God to be more right. Yeah. All right, so uh, go back to what he says. He, there are texts that teach God knows everything that has or will, will ever happen. His next proof text. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. From Psalms 139.4. So do you see anything in there about God? What, what's the statement? God knows everything that has or will ever happen. Anything in there about that? Uh, I don't I don't see it, man. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> And I'm, and I'm really trying right now. You know? uh, so like I'm, I'm trying. So if someone, if someone knew every word I was going to say before well, I said it, gonna say, and uh, would if if they came to me and said I could do that, and then they they demonstrated it, I'm about to say a word, and then they told me what word I'm going to say. After this whole experiment's done, and they get every single word I say, they get it right every single time. My natural conclusion is not to say, oh, you must be omniscient. You must know all things that have ever happened in every sense of the word, all the way into the future and everything that can and will ever happen. That's right, not would, that's not going to be my conclusion. No. It would be like, like, how are you taking brain states and figuring out what I'm about to say? Explain yeah. to me how you are figuring this out. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, you must have some sort of mechanism to, uh, awesome. like a prediction mechanism with the limited uh, knowledge that you have of who I am, my brain waves, something like that. And you might be able to predict like that. And a lot of open theists, this is how they take this verse. That God, that I, I think this is a, re, re, a little bit ridiculous, a ridic, ridiculous take, that they think that God watches their brain synapses fire. And so that that's because we think in our brain before we say it, that's how God knows what we're going to say before we say it. I don't think that's what this text is about myself. So I, I don't, I, I took that interpretation because that seemed easier to me than trying to explain that this is poetic language and the psalmist is just, you know, overcome with something. I didn't, I didn't want to go that route. And a lot of the, a lot of the verses that I, uh, that I responded to because I just accepted his interpretation because it seemed like that'd be easier for me. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that could be a position. Uh, I don't think King David's like, no, let me explain. I, we're, we're doing a book on poetry. We're, we're doing a, a Psalm of praise to God. Let's explain him watching our synapses fire. I, right. I don't, it's, I think what's going but, on is if I'm talking about my wife and it's a love poem about my wife and uh, you know, we can finish each other's sentences. We are so in tune in love. Not saying I'd ever write this poem, you know, this is just an example, but there's an open theist on uh, God is open. He says, yeah, me and my daughter are so close that we can finish each other's sentences. We know 
what we're going to say before we say it because it's a personal relationship that they, they know each other so well. It's not a hard and fast rule. So when you're reading the Psalms, it it's it's a mistake to take everything hard and fast. The Psalms talk about God's wings. So if you're taking everything hard and fast, you should be ascribing wings to God. You know? That's For sure. <laughs> and don't do that. Or maybe do. You know, I don't know. It's fine. Um God having wings, there was that episode we did on God is Open about God's wings. Uh, the psalm saying God has wings, if it's being used in a metaphorical sense, it doesn't tell us if God does or doesn't have wings. That's not the purpose. That's not the purpose no. of the statement to tell us if God has wings or doesn't. It's actually being used for a different purpose. It's to illustrate God's protection or power. And, and I think I think this is an illustration of God's personal relationship with King David and the whole Psalm itself reads to me like a very personal, special relationship. That's not generalizable. And I agree a hundred percent, you know, but I, I feel like if he, if I, if I was to try to explain that here, he would just be like, Oh, he's just using poetic language to explain this away. So what I try to do a lot of times when I'm discussing something with someone or we're in debate is I will do my best to just accept their interpretation of, so like in this instance, you know, I can illustrate a way whereby God can still literally know everything that you're going to say before you say it with some sort of mechanism, which is a possibility that he could do, you know, if he wanted to do so that that way I don't get bogged down in the whole, <laughs> is this poetic? Is this literal? Cause I feel like some of that is necessary at times for sure. But in a debate context, if, if you're trying, if you have one person saying, well, this is poetic and another person saying this is supposed to be literal, you're not going anywhere. Like so, that's the end of the conversation right there. Done. So let me hit you with a new angle. Uh, there, there's other possibilities that no one considers that are actual possibilities. Let's pretend God's omniscience functions that he learns all events 10 minutes before each event happens. Let's, let's just pretend hypothetically that this is a scenario about how God's omniscience works in that sense. Uh, God can predict things that are going to happen in the future, 100% accuracy, 100% of the time, although open theism would be true because he's acquiring knowledge. He's acquiring information. And, uh, and Or maybe God hasn't acquired omniscience of all future events. Maybe God is working with Adam, then he works with Noah and Abraham or whatever. And at some point in time, he's like, okay, now I want to know everything in the future. And then he makes the world such that he now knows all the future and acquired omniscience of all things. These are possibilities that uh, need to be considered as, as options, you know, and for, a lot for sure, because there's nothing logically inconsistent about either of those. Right. So when, when we're, you're dealing with classical theists or Augustinian theology, they just automatically dismiss those ways to understand any text. And so a text about God predicting Cyrus, for example, that doesn't prove that he's always had all true propositional knowledge from all eternity into eternity future from all time. He doesn't, he never, never at any point in time has he gained a new propositional truth in his mind, in his mind that doesn't prove that at most, at most, that proves that at some point in time, God gained knowledge of this future event well into the past. And so that that's the problem we're seeing right here in this use of this Psalms verse, 
He wants to prove that God knows everything that has or will ever happen, and he's quoting a verse about God knowing an event right before it occurs. Right. Does it, not compute. It it doesn't prove what you're trying to prove. It's it's bad no. evidence. So let's go down to another Psalms verse, Psalms 139. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. This this sounds like open theism to me. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Okay. Okay. So, so I got to say that I love that the verse that we read before this one comes after this. And they, they were definitely put out of order on purpose. <laughs> oh, this is funny. So um, this text, does this teach that God knows everything that has or will ever happen? <laughs> Well, let's just adopt a super literal reading right here. Okay, so the Lord has searched the psalmist. He knows when the psalmist is going to sit and rise. He can perceive the psalmist's thoughts from afar. He can discern the psalmist going out and his lying down, and he is familiar with all the psalmist's ways. So even if you adopt the, because that right there is the most literal reading of the text, I think. Even if you adopt that, it doesn't teach that God knew all these things from eternity past. It doesn't teach that God knows all these things about all people that have existed, are existing, will ever exist. So here's the funny thing to me. People who want to argue omniscience, they will take verses about God's current observation. God is currently acquiring knowledge. He looks down from heaven and he sees all the actions of men. He's watching events unfold. They'll take verses that literally talk about God currently acquiring new information, and then they'll claim it as a proof text that God knows all things into the future. It's like, this is a proof text against your position. If you read the text, this is God acquiring knowledge. This, this text disproves your premise, and you're, you're counting a text. It's not often in debates when you're debating someone and then you use their own evidence to di disprove what they're trying to, you know, <laughs> typically you have to br you look at their evidence and you talk about how their evidence is deficient. Then you have to introduce your own evidence for your own belief and argue why your evidence is superior. In this case, we just keep their evidence and then we just say, just read your evidence. It's our position. This is literally <laughs> against your position. It's literally, literally our position. God is acquiring knowledge. <laughs> it's so it's so brilliant, though. I mean, oh. it's so brilliant. We should do that in some capacity. Yeah, yeah. It's this, we we don't have to introduce our own evidence in this debate. We're just going to use the evidence that you've introduced. That's our evidence. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So if, if, uh, to take your point too on the verse before, you know, when we were talking about how it's a, a statement of relation. Obviously, Yahweh is well acquainted with the psalmist. There's a relationship there. There's a foundation of something. There's an intimate knowledge of at least coming from Yahweh to the psalmist. You mm. know, that, those are the ideas that are being conveyed here. Oh, it's so funny. I perceive, you perceive my thoughts from afar. So, wow, he's gaining information about my thoughts. You discern my going out, my lying down. He's, he's watching him do these things. You're familiar with all my ways. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, is it's it's funny to me. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's like you, you gotta you gotta read your own text. Read your own text. Up uh, th this pastor guy, he who kicked me out of his church. Uh, uh, he's like, D here's the proof that God knows all things, past, present, and future. 
In the Proverbs, he turns to the Proverbs, God says the eyes of the Lord are on the ways of the good and the wicked. <laughs> oh, you guys, you guys haven't given any thought to your proof texts. Oh. God's, wa- God's watching all these good people and these evil people doing all this stuff, and that proves that he's got knowledge of everything from eternity past. Oh, oh it's, it's, it is just so funny to me. Okay, so we'll go on this his next one. He's still in Psalms 139. So, so far we got two different passages in the Bible he appeals to. He appeals to Deutero-Isaiah, which is Isaiah 40 through 48, roughly. And uh, Psalms 139. He does, He's not straying very far from two, two passages, two contexts. Oh. So, Psalms 139. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Is there, I don't, um, is there anything about uh, knowing... All events past and all events future in there. There's a secret somewhere, I guess. That's kind of right. (laughs) Yeah, it's like I was visible to you when I was being formed. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. This, This sounds a little open theistic to me. I don't know. All the days. Okay, so here's probably where he's getting at. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God, how vast the sum of them. So maybe he's referencing that phrase too. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. So he's he's describing a quantifiable number of uh, knowledge, you know, his thoughts. When I awake, I'm still with you. Did you see anything in there about God knows everything that has or will ever happen? So he's like 0 for 6 right now. I don't... So I, I guess... <laughs> I mean, I guess so. The thing that he could appeal to would be the days being ordained. I really want to hope that he's appealing to. I was woven together in the depths of the earth. I feel like we should talk about that because apparently we aren't created like in a stomach in our mommies. We're actually made in the depths of the earth, which was maybe like the core of the earth or something. And then yeah. we come up here and inhabit a body. So <laughs> um, I think that's idiomatic. Where Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. There's a lot of, you know, you don't, you don't, when you die, they don't take your naked body and shove you back into your mom's stomach. That's weird. And so I think there's a lot of Hebrew idiomatic uh, phrases at play, which conflates um, the lowest parts of the earth or the earth or the grave and the womb. I think it's, it's, it seems idiomatic there. Are you suggesting that this passage from the Psalms is full of idioms? I would suggest it. I would actually take Calvin's view on this verse. John Calvin, he's he's a pretty good Hebrew scholar. I'll give him John that. Cal- is that John Calvin himself? John Calvin himself. This is John Calvin's commentary that I got pulled up. And I'll kind of increase the text here. Because John, John Calvin is my homeboy. Everything John Calvin says I love very much. So- could we assume that if this verse teaches that God knows everything that has or will ever happen, that John Calvin would have definitely 100% said, yep, this is coming with me? Maybe. We might assume that in John Calvin. But let's read what John Calvin, his take on this verse, and it's a translation issue. He says, some read Yaman in the nominative case, when the days were made, the sense being, according to them, all my bones were written in thy book. And so members and bones, it's kind of the same concept, the same word. O God, from the beginning of the world, when the days were first formed by thee, and when yet as none of them actually existed, the other is the more natural meaning. 
that mm. the different parts of the human body are formed in a succession of time. For in the first germ, there is no arrangement of parts or proportion of members, but it, it is developed and takes its form, uh, its particular form progressively. And so what John Calvin is saying is that this verse is about fetology, the development in the womb. The human beings go through cycles. And so we start as unformed. You know, Jeremiah says, before you formed me in the womb, you knew me. So when you're the unformed substance in the womb, you gradually form together per per instruction manual, per a book, right? Uh, he references the book that uh, describes how he's being formed in the womb. And so John Calvin takes this as fetology, which I will side with John Calvin here. Uh, then they're going to be like, well, how come you, you accept his interpretation here, but nowhere else? In other places, he says, uh, I know what the text says, but the text isn't true because God's just lisping to us. Because it's like a nursemaid lisping to a baby, like, it's nonsense. So he says, I understand the text says this, but we just got to disregard the text because my theology takes precedence. I, I take Calvin's view here on Psalm 139 also. In my response, I just went super literal like I did before that at best this text teaches that God is talking about the psalmist. Okay, so... I'm an open theist. I'm fine with that. Let's even accept that God ordained all the days for this particular person. I can accept that as well with an open theism. So again, this was an instance where I didn't want to get bogged down in translation. I just said, all right, well, I'm going to accept your translation. We're going to go literal with the text as literal as possible, remove any chance of poetic imagery or anything like that. And it still doesn't teach what it is that you're saying it teaches. And, and this is the verse that John Sanders said. There's six different ways to uh, respond to this. You know, some of them are like, God limited the time frame that man can be alive. You, you, you find statements in Job about him limiting the days of mankind. You find in Genesis 6, his years are limited to 120, which some people take as the upper limit on the human lifespan. And then they attribute that as maybe this is what that's talking about. I think the John Calvin position is the better one, uh, but there's, there's other options as well. Yeah, and the, the the Genesis one where God limits man's days. I mean, that's not terrible either. You know, that's that's possible. So, anyway, it's, it's not happening here. No matter what position you take on this, this has nothing to do with God. Let's let's grab that phrase again. God knows everything that has or will ever happen. It's just not there in the text. Nothing in here says anything about God knowing everything that has and will ever happen. Job twenty one twenty two. Can anyone teach knowledge to God since he judges even the highest? The first thing I notice about this sentence is it's a question. So what would the answer be? So going turning to Job twenty one, uh, the first thing to notice is who's talking. It's Job, and Job he says some right things about God, but is everything he says are the are the characters in this back and forth narrative? Job and his friends are they to be taken as Arbitrators of truth. They know absolutely everything that's true about the world, and uh, anything they say, we should just accept authoritatively. I suspect that that is a recipe for disaster. I, I, I expect, yeah, you never want to quote a character in a text as oh. your source for, you want to quote God or the narrators. It's what you're going for. So it's not that this text isn't meant to be taken as true or literal, but when you're quoting characters, that's a bad proof text. No matter what, what the text says, Job's wife says, curse God and die. And so you could uh, quote her saying that. And, uh, or even if, even if you're quoting the friends, the friends have a lot of quotes 
And God at the end wants to kill these guys because they're saying all the wrong things. So be, be very careful when you're quoting Job's friends. Let's, let's just take this verse. This verse is true. It's, that's narrator God talking. Does this teach that God knows everything that has or will ever happen? I, I don't think so. Yeah, it seems to me like the same thing that's going on here was going on in Isaiah where people are counseling God and and uh, trying to teach him the right from wrong and uh, give him morality advice, something like that. It's not it's not about God receiving new propositional knowledge. It doesn't seem so, like that. No, and since we have a comma and a question mark, if we just flip the two sentences, right? So because God judges even the highest, who can teach him knowledge? Right? So That's a really a good point. Yeah. So the evidence for God not being able to be taught knowledge is that he judges even the highest. So he's above them morally. Yeah. He, and in wisdom and power and all that stuff. So. Yeah, I see nothing in there about God knowing all past true propositions or knowing all future true propositions. I don't see anything in there about that. Now, I'm beginning to see a trend develop here. <laughs> how many how many proof texts are we in let's see one two three four five six we're six proof texts in but and we haven't found that uh there are texts that teach god knows everything that has or will ever typically you start with your best and so if you say the bible teaches xyz you start with your number one proof text for teaching that and if that falls flat oh boy you're in a lot of trouble and it's, it's almost like that's what happened. And it's only getting worse. All right. So Psalms 147. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. So without getting into the stars and ancient Near East cosmology and are those divine beings and all that stuff, still, does this say that God knows everything? That has ever happened or will ever happen? No. Yeah, it's interesting. In the ancient world, um, omniscience didn't operate on its own. Uh, Christians like to think that because they think, oh, if God has access to all facts continually in the front of his mind, he has no reason to process that knowledge <laughs> because he has access to all true propositions already. You don't have to process that knowledge in order to come to conclusions. But that's actually what this word here is. It's about God's processing ability, that God is crafty or clever, and his cleverness has no limits. His ability to, to process and use information to bring about practical results, uh, results that affect the real world. And it has no limit, that no limit, that's the same word that's used for Joseph collected the grain in Egypt during right before the famine. He collected grain without limit. And so someone like Dwezel will come to this verse and they'll say, this, this no limit means perfect perfection that's categorically different. Well, that's, that's a little bit of a stretch. Maybe it does. Maybe it does. But elsewhere, the word is used for things that actually do have finite limit. It just means uncountable. It means very great, a lot. It doesn't, you don't, you don't see any definitive uses of uh, no limit used in the sense that, that Dwezel would like where it's the perfect perfection. And so I think there's all sorts of problems. There's some conflation with knowledge. Being able to use and process knowledge is not the same thing as having knowledge itself. 
And uh, that's one thing they don't understand because conceptually, conceptually, the ancient Near East view of how knowledge functions, it's not in their wheelhouse. It's not in their conceptual framework of, of God because it doesn't make sense with Augustinian theology. Yeah, I mean, there's so many problems here. Understanding, the word understanding does not mean truth values of future <laughs> events. I mean, determining the number of stars, is that all knowledge? No. Calling them by each name, is that all knowledge? No. There's just nothing there at all. I mean, there's something there, but it's not what the what Sire is purporting to be there. So what he wants to do is he wants to have, me, have understanding mean knowledge and no limit mean all true propositions, which sounds to me like a limit. <laughs> all right, next. And you, my son Solomon, this is 1 Chronicles 28.9, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him wholeheartedly with devotion and with a willing mind for the Lord searches every heart. <laughs> Okay, I, I got to start that part over. The Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. I, 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 I can't say that I've ever seen this as a proof text for omniscience before. But I feel go, like, go ahead. I feel, like, I feel like he's doing that thing where he takes one of our things and tries to say it's his thing again. Oh, like it's so funny. Oh, it's so funny. So God searches hearts and understands every thought or desire. So God actively acquires knowledge. And that's no, his proof text for God knowing all things past, present, and future. Oh, oh, this is bad. So in this verse, again, nothing about all things past. Not Nothing about all things future. The, the subject of this is limited to hearts and desires of human beings. Which it does it does it involve squirrels and and rocks on deserted islands? I don't think I don't think that verse is about that. Um, and does it involve any future actions in the sense that maybe he acquires that new knowledge as it comes about? It's our text. It is fully our text. And even if you try to adopt his interpretation, like if you sit here and try to find, try to twist this in some way where it says that God knows everything that will ever happen. It still doesn't say that because even the most literal thing, okay, he understands hearts and understands every desire and every thought. Is that every event that's ever going to happen? It's not. Is that everything, like you said, is everything a squirrel does? Is that everything the leaf that's attached to the tree outside is going to do in its lifetime? No, it's, it's talking about his deep understanding of humans. Yeah, I would. I'd like it if God declared to me when and where my cat was gonna throw up on my carpet. Then I'd be ready with the scrub brush. Then I'd have like that little. But uh, he doesn't. <laughs> it's not. It's not about cats throwing up on carpets. Uh, we'll just. We'll just put that there. That could be a good title for the podcast. It's not about cats throwing up on carpets. <laughs> oh, that'd be funny. Okay, so Job. We're we're back to Job again. Uh, do you know? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? Another Dwezel text. A little bit. And we got that curious common question mark again also. Yeah, it seems rhetorical. Elihu. Elihu. Oh, don't do it. Okay, so anything Elihu. Here's my, my suggestion with Elihu. If Elihu says something, you look at it, you say, man, you throw it in the trash. 
<laughs> Pretty much. Everything he says is, is trash. It's garbage. Uh, but let's just pretend the narrator, the narrator and God, they affirm the sentence. Um, they, they love Elihu. We'll just pretend. This is our hypothetical. And Elihu is a great guy, they think. And they think that uh, God is perfect in knowledge. Perfect in knowledge. So, uh, does that prove that God knows everything past, present, and future? I think it teaches that God knows how the clouds sit in the sky at the very best, right? <laughs> right. <clears throat> Seems that way. A, lo a lot of times what they'll do is they have these trigger words, we'll say, that they look for. So anytime perfect is used of God, not man, when it's used of man, they just gloss over and they're like, oh, Job is perfect. Nah, I don't quite care about that. And uh, anytime it's used of, uh, here, look at this. So this word perfect is used of Noah. In Genesis 6, 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah is a just man and perfect in his, in his generation. And so they, they don't like these words being used about man. You know, that doesn't affirm their theology. And uh, if they were to take everything literally or consistently, they'd have real problems with men being perfect. But this perfection, yeah. it's just general statement without blemish. You know, it's, it's a good knowledge. It's, it's a high quality knowledge. Right, and the purpose here is to show how high above Yahweh is compared to us, you know, compared to the object here. So he's basically saying, like, you don't even know how the cloud right there, how that sits in the sky. You know, Yahweh does. So he's saying God's, this is Elihu talking, remember, garbage. Not saying that this, this statement's garbage. I'm, I would say this right. statement. I'd say God's perfect in knowledge. And what perfect means is without blemish. It's like God, God's knowledge is, he, he's got access to a lot more knowledge than we have. And, uh, you know, if, if I'm going to argue with God on something, typically God's going to be right. If it comes to like a factual statement, what happened yesterday in, in uh, Syria or something like that, I'm not going to argue with God and say, well, here's what I think happened previously on this whatever day. I think God might have better access to information than I have. I suspect he does. So I don't see anything in here about never being able to acquire new knowledge, never or knowing all things future that will ever happen. Here's, here's what they do. They say, I'm not saying the author does this, but in general, like Calvinists, if God gains knowledge, then he's not perfect in knowledge and he's deficient and he's growing in perfections and you can't grow in perfections. And uh, that's, that's a massive assumption on the text. And you'd have to prove that Elihu and ancient Israel and the biblical authors and God had that same view and they can't do it because that's an imposition on the text. Yeah. So let's, let's roll on Psalms 33 back to the Psalms. So from heaven, <laughs> Oh, this is, this is it. This is it. We've, we've talked about this verse already. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, <laughs> he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. Okay, let's let's scroll up to look at our phrase again. Third, there are texts that teach God knows everything that has or will ever happen. So does that text to you, does that teach that God knows everything? We'll start with the first part. Does that teach that God knows everything that has ever happened? No, it doesn't say everything that has ever happened in there. No, it's, it does, doesn't say anything about that. How about does it say that God knows everything that will ever happen? 
it doesn't say that God knows everything that will ever happen. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it this, seems this to me. Is, this is literally the third time where he's taking one of our things and giving it back to us and saying, this disproves your thing. This is God acquiring <laughs> knowledge. This shouldn't happen. This should not happen in no. a belief that God doesn't acquire knowledge. God should not be acquiring knowledge. And he absolutely should not be doing it through, what's the mechanism here? In, in, in Augustinian theology, God's knowledge is ever-present in his mind. It's uh, ungenerated knowledge. If he gains knowledge from outside himself, that's, that's, that's acquiring knowledge. So if God didn't know how the universe was going to turn out at some point, and then created the universe, and then acquired, acquired knowledge of the future events, you're an open theist if you believe that. Because God acquires knowledge to himself. God acquires propositional knowledge. But, but does, does this, does, this describes the way that God acquires the knowledge. It, there's a word in there that starts with a W. <laughs> Watches as he's looking down. Watches, looks, sees. This is visual omniscience. God is acquiring knowledge through a mechanism. He's acquiring it through visual sight as events occur in real time. And maybe he might be referring, maybe he wants to, let's, let's pretend, let's pretend for example, uh, he read the first part correctly and he was just, he just included it accidentally to, in, in his the quoting of this verse to make his point. Maybe he's focusing on the second part. Maybe he's a Calvinist. He who forms the hearts of all. Well, then we have to look into what maybe forms, what that word means that God shapes or that God guides or that, uh, Right. So does that mean physical formation of the heart, like in the birth and the, the gestation process? Does that mean God molds people's hearts and wills and minds and tries to draw them more in line with his purposes? What does that mean? Yeah. So let's do the quick text search on that. Uh, we'll, we'll pull in some. Uh, God forms man. Okay. Man who he's formed. God formed every beast. There's potters, there's fashioning, and there's molding. Yeah, so there, there you'll find proverbs and stuff like God guides the hearts of kings. He, he man's ways are his own, but God guides his steps. Things like that. I think that's the idea that's going on here. That God is an active participant in molding and shaping the lives of men. But it's all a real time thing. It's not. It's not an eternal thing. We should try to retranslate this. And right. to say what what he wants it to say. So it's, he says, who considers everything they do? So notice that, that phrase right there. The things that they do, God has to consider because God didn't predestine these things. God didn't eternally foresee these things. God acquires this new information, then considers what ramifications there are to this information, and then he forms their hearts. You know, and he guides their ways. It, this is this is a, a real time process that's being described here, for sure. The verse would need to say at the end, uh, "Who has known everything that will ever happen and has ever happened from all eternity past?" In order for it to say what he's saying that it says, it would have to say that. And it It'd also have to say, "God does not acquire knowledge from sight." <laughs> it would also have to say, "God does not acquire knowledge from sight," which I think it says the opposite. Yeah, it's, sort it's of it? absolute opposite. So that's. And even, and even if you say, well, this is just poetic language, well, it's still trying to convey an idea. And the idea is that God is relational with humans. 
that he takes part in our lives. He sees the things that we do. He reacts accordingly. And, and hitting that concept up, let's, let's say this is poetic language, and they say, you know, God's not actually in heaven. God doesn't sit in heaven and look down on earth. That's poetic. So you need to understand that this is poetic language. Well, then it's not your proof text. <laughs> right. You can't prove that this poetic language means what you're claiming. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's just like back up at that first proof text we talked about for open theism, how, how it never entered God's mind that, uh, that he should command these things. If it's not a good proof text, don't include it in your proof text. If there's if there's right. other ways to understand your proof texts that are reasonable, you can't use it. No, and t- to be honest, when I was writing my response, it was like three verse, maybe two or three verses ahead of or in front of this that we already went through, where I was just so drained with doing this. To be <laughs> honest with you, because like there's no interpretation offered of these verses, so I'm trying to find what he what he's is saying that these things say and none of them say it. And it was just, it was very taxing for me. This, this is a real problem in debate. People think that verses speak for themselves. And so they'll say, here's my view and it's the true view. And you'll say, okay, well, what's your evidence? And they'll post a verse and you say, what does that verse mean? And uh, they'll say, well, I don't need to interpret it. It's plain right there. It's like, there's, there's other readings of that verse that are, that are equally and probably a better reading of that verse. If you're not going to talk to me about what that verse means, you know, I'm a little lost here because I don't see it. I don't see your point being made in the proof text that you posted. And then you just get people talking past each other, man. It's like, it's obvious. All, All I have to do to prove my view is just take a little snippet of one sentence from the Bible and post it on a forum. See, my, my, my beliefs are true. No commentary. No commentary, no discussion about alternative meanings of your no no conversation about context and and what the context suggests. Nothing like that. Just just one sentence. We'll throw that in in a forum on a debate. My view is true. Oh, this next one. This next one cracks me up. Okay. Whenever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. 1 John 3:20. So when I responded to this, I was not in a good mood because of all the things that I had been through. And I went like super heavy here with the philosophy because I felt like being mean, (laughs) to be honest with you. So I went into, you know, everything can't mean, you know, the moon is made of cheese. can't mean that (laughs) I'm a four-year-old girl. Right. So it has to mean everything that's true about reality. And then I got into how the future is made up of settled events and possible events. And God wouldn't know possible events as settled and settled events as possible. So the culmination of everything was me kind of releasing, releasing this frustration on him. Like, here, deal with this. So, so he's, he's probably going to just read it and be like, eh, I don't mean, I don't know. Hopefully, oh, response it, to it, but... I understand the frustration. It gets really frustrating. It's like people who don't, no open theism. They're not familiar with open theism. What open theism says about their their favorite proof texts. It's like they're you know if if you're gonna write an article against someone with your proof text, you should at least know what they say about those proof texts. Yeah, man. Do I some mean, do, do some homework. You know, have some li- respect for yourself. A little, little research. But this is my Matt Slick verse, and uh, you know my Matt Slick story. And I was talking to Matt Slick. Uh, 
face to face. We're in person after the Will Duffy debate. And he's like, well, of course, God's omniscient and knows all things past, present and future. You know, does that is that what this says, that God knows all things past, present and future? You know, that's yeah. that's an assumption of what the word everything means. It is. And so he says, first John 320. And so then I say back to him, I was like, well, well, man knows everything. First John 220. <laughs> and we'll, we'll pull up first John 220. This is. New King James, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. So it's the same author, the same verse, a different chapter, man knows everything. And so my point, of course, is that Matt Slick has double standards. The same phrase is used about man as used about God. He'll take one in his super philosophical omniscient sense, and the other he'll just read right past without considering. So Matt Slick's eyes went wild, and he's like, oh, what, what, that doesn't say that? I'm like, it says it right here. And he runs over to his computer because his computer was up on the stage, and he was on his chair in the audience with me, talking where the audience would sit. And he starts, he's like, it doesn't say it in this text. I'm like, it's it's in the Byzantine text. It's in the Byzantine text that says this. And he's he's like, it's not in this text. I'm like, what texts are you checking? So either you're going to, if you're checking the Greek, if you're checking the Greek, either you're uh, checking like a, uh, a critical text, like a Westcott Hort type text type, where it's a, a compilation of all the different critical texts, or you're t checking the Byzantine text, which is the majority text. And he kept using the word text as uh, what I think was actually going on was he's actually talking about different Bible versions, like the NIV he checks, and like maybe he checks like uh, New American Standard or something like that. He's not in this version. I'm like, it's in the Byzantine text. And if you knew anything about biblical translation, you'll know that the only two texts that uses it is the King James and the New King James. The King James uses the Textus Receptus, which is very close to uh, what we know as the Byzantine, the compilation, the Byzantine. And, but the King, New King James uses the Byzantine, which uses the exact same phrase. Uh, for knows everything and you know that's that that re that represents the majority of the text that we have today it says that uh, the same phrase used for man as used for god so let's pretend even even pretend that the critical text is the true text and the, and the majority text is not the true text uh, most of christendom most christians throughout history have seen that phrase the exact same phrase applied to god as applied to man and they didn't read it in uh, Matt Slick's way. So that's funny. No, because we know, if, if you read the Bible, you know sometimes everything doesn't mean everything. Sometimes forever doesn't mean forever. You know, you have to, you can't just say, you can't just do a word search for whatever the lemma is for everything and say, whoa, whoa, look at this. No, I mean, that's not how it works. The, the point here is that John's trying to convey is that you know, even if we condemn ourselves, if we feel guilt or something like that, God is greater than how we feel about ourselves. You know, he knows where we're at in relation to him. He knows what Jesus did for us. He knows all these things, you know, so chill out. Yeah. So what it illustrates is double standards. Um, in order to have these as his proof texts, all these proof texts, we go through, we look at all his proof texts. He has to read the same phrases they're applied to men, and he has to read them differently when they're applied to God, which tells us that he's special pleading. 
He's assuming his translation of these verses is the true one without any evidence. There's no contextual analysis to show that these little phrases mean what he wants them to mean. And uh, there's some contextual evidence to show that these proof texts don't mean what he wants to force them to mean. Uh, But he, he likes to assume his theology into the text rather than gain his theology from the text. Yeah, so, and it's okay to read something applied to a human and something applied to God is different. Yeah. It just, yeah. it just, it just depends on what's being said, you know? So if, for example, in first John here, if previous to the statement, he knows everything, John gave a list of, he knows all that ever was and all that ever will be. And he has perfect knowledge of all things from before creation and he knows everything. Then yeah, you could say this definitely is telling me that God has all these faculties. But that's not that's not the context of the statement, just like that's not the context of the statement pertaining to humans the chapter earlier. Yeah. So there's no reason to understand it that way. And I have a list of uh, early church fathers or whatever who actually do believe in future omniscience of all things. And uh, you could tell by the context. You know, there's some phrases right. that the church fathers use that you're not quite sure. Maybe they could go one way or the other, but some are pretty clear from context. And so those are what you would want to look for to prove future omniscience of all events, and they don't exist in the Bible. No, because John's not giving a statement about your 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 guilt that you feel, and then he's going to say, well, let's pause about that for a second, and oh, by the way, God has perfect future knowledge of all events that will happen and he's known it from all eternity past. Okay, let's get let's get back to the reason why I'm writing this letter now. I mean, that's not how people do that. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <clears throat> Romans, Romans eleven thirty three. This is another funny proof text that I haven't seen before. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Does this prove, back to his statement, these, these, this, these are all in context of what he says. There are texts that teach God knows everything that has or will ever happen. Does that verse teach that? It doesn't. At all. I mean, like, not even close. Okay. <laughs> so there's depths and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I don't dispute that. Of course there is. You know, unsearchable are his judgments, his paths are beyond tracing out. I don't understand everything he does, you know? Yeah. Does that mean that God has knows everything that has ever happened or will ever happen? No. In order for the verse to say that, it would have to say, and God knows everything that has ever happened and will ever happen. I mean, they say, oh, the depth of the knowledge of God. And by depth, I mean perfect omniscience of all events from eternity past to eternity for future right. knowledge that never came to God. It doesn't say anything like that. No. And to be honest, like this is so this is so taxing having to do this. Just go through all these verses because they're not challenging. There's nothing there. It's like, what's going on here? So that's why my rule for debates is when someone shotgun proof texts to you, they they say, oh, all these verses affirm my belief. And they'll list like 20 different verses. Matt Slick is famous for doing this. He, he could quote verses like that, that, mm-hmm. that. And so if you're going to play shotgun proof text with him, he's going to win the shotgun proof text. But if you checked his first reference, the first verse he uses as a proof text, and it absolutely doesn't say what he's claiming it says, you have good reason just to discount all of them. You say, you, yeah. you know, your first one didn't pan out. Uh, the burden of proof is now on you to prove that any of these proof texts have anything to do with what you're claiming, because we have shown you just quote verses. I, you know, 
if you, if you want to play that game, I could throw out a ton of verses. Hebrews 1.5, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.7, <laughs> Genesis 21.1, and, you know, just random verses or yeah, whatever. Yeah, just start throwing random verses out there. Absolutely. Yeah, just complain. Yeah. Absolutely. If it was like a face-to-face debate, for sure, I mean, that'd be something. But here with the writing and whatever, I mean, I had like four days to do it, so I figured why not. Right. Okay, so this next verse is is a fantastic verse. So Hebrews, I would say, would if there's any book that anyone was going to flag as maybe the most philosophically based, the most Platonic maybe, maybe with Platonic or mystery cult influence or maybe even Gnostic influence, you know, if anyone was going to flag any book in the Bible for this, maybe, maybe Hebrews would be the one. But here's what the author of Hebrews writes. Which gives me gives me a lot of confidence that the New Testament authors uh, actually agreed with the Old Testament authors and their conception of God. Here's what the author of Hebrews writes: Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight; everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him, whom we must give account. Again, it's almost like he's taking one of our things and saying it's his thing. You know, so, I mean, yeah. God looking down, seeing things, he sees all that happens and you're going to have to give an account for your actions because he saw them. And one of the most complicated philosophical type of uh, high concept books in the Bible, their description of God's omniscience is God looking down and watching mankind. Ha! Huh. Holy buckets. Holy buckets. <laughs> These he guys are all open theists. These guys, the author of Hebrews was definitely an open theist. God, it should have started with this one. Yeah. God gains knowledge from observing the actions of man. Oh, even, even in Hebrews. So Hebrews gives me, you know, there's people who want to throw Hebrews out of the Bible, like uh, Martin Luther or whatever. You know, verses like this is like, let's keep the Hebrews in. That's a that's a pretty nice uh, nice thing to understand about uh, that culture at that time, what they believed, their conception of God, is that he watches things as they occur. He, he gains current knowledge. Right. And since we're done with the verses, I would like to say, it's a bit, let's just accept for a moment as fact that God does have knowledge of all future events from eternity past. The Bible doesn't teach that. Even if that's the true reality of how things work, that's not what the Bible teaches us. Yeah, absolutely. And and one other point. Um, there, there seems to be a trend also in this paper to verse Trump. So the open theists have our proof texts or whatever. Uh, he quotes one, one proof text that the open theists use. He deals with one of them. And then he says, here's all my proof texts, as if, as if none of the other open theist proof texts exists and all his verses take precedence and all his verses mean what he wants them to mean. And so ver- verse trumping is pretty terrible, in my opinion, where one verse is going to override another. You have to read one verse in light of the other. Why are you doing that? Are those verses in context of each other? Is it the same writer talking about the same instance, the same concept? And, uh, you know, first trumping is a terrible debate strategy. It might win debates. It might be like, oh, let's forget about your verse. Let's go talk about my verses. I'm Matt Slick. And your followers might be like, yay. 
but uh, it tends to be irrational. And it's annoying to listen to. Oh, it's super annoying. It's like this. Let's just pick one of your proof texts and we'll pick one of my proof texts and then we'll hit each one in detail. And that would probably be a better discussion than, you know, <laughs> than uh, anything else. Just trying to shotgun blast each other with the proof text and, and pull ourselves all over the Bible to different places where we have to deal with each text and waste all our time during right. this thing. Where we wasted a lot of time going through these proof texts. Dude, that was like two hours. <laughs> We'll hit, we'll hit a little bit more, and then we might have to cut us off. Furthermore, the philosophical open theist view only has weight if you accept that agents have libertarian freedom. To that, Calvinists wisely wisely reject, and that is a problem for Arminians, uh, Pelagians, and Molinism. The Calvinists can ground the truth value of future tensed propositions in the will of God. Another verse contradicting open theism is Ephesians 1.11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So, pertaining to the verse, I just, I went and quoted Boyd here, because that was easier for me, because I'm pretty drained at this point when I was going through this. And I broke this up over like four days. But the, the paragraph ahead of it, I don't understand, for one, the sentence to that Calvinist wisely reject, and that is a problem for Arminians, Pelagians, and Molinism. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying that uh, Calvinists take the correct position that we have no free will, and Arminians, Pelagians, and Molinists, as if those are like contradictory categories, I guess, whatever, uh, those people are wrong to reject that we don't have free will. Okay. So... <clears throat> Furthermore, the philosophical open theist position only works if you accept that agents have libertarian freedom. <laughs> if you don't think everything's faded, he says, it, the system that you talk about where the future's open and new things could happen, that only works if everything's not faded. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah. You got me there. You got me there. Right. Very well said, sir. <laughs> You know, but he doesn't offer an explanation against libertarian freedom. He doesn't offer a compatibilist position. I, I think in his mind, I think in he's his just mind, he's just assuming it. You know? Yeah, I think Ephesians one eleven is his proof for this. And uh, we've obtained me? an inheritance. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Uh, he might be. Maybe he's trolling us. He's a, he's an I expert troll, and he <laughs> he knows how to waste a bunch of time of a bunch of people very effectively. Dude, did you write this article? I wrote it. It was a plant. I planted it so that we have something. It was me pretend. It was my Calvinist persona that I pretend to be to prove to people that I could pull off successfully Calvinism. You know, Calvinists always say, oh, you just don't understand Calvinism. Well, I think I, I would make for a pretty passable Calvinist. Yeah, for but sure. But no, I, I didn't write this one. Okay. But that would be funny. Uh, there, there would be some I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past you. I still think maybe now that the seed's been planted, it's possible that Chris wrote this. It is, it is possible. <laughs> Definite possibility. So we have obtained an inheritance, haven't been predestined. We've talked about predestined before. That just means specify. Uh, the Jews, when talking about who your neighbor is, this is Clement that writes this, they specify, they predestine that your neighbor is your blood relation. You know, uh, they're, not, they're not doing this. Oh, I'm picking you from all of eternity. They're just, they're just defining something. They're just specifying something. Yeah. And so we've been specified 
according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And I think the all things is what's happening here. Oh, here, here's his explanation. This verse teaches God has from eternity, from eternity. I must have missed that part. Hold hold on. Does it say eternity in there? I'm not seeing it. Uh, I'm not seeing eternity. This verse teaches God has from eternity. No, it doesn't. What? Okay. False. Has purposed and worked all things according to his will. Some of the phrases are equivalent. But yeah. Let's go back to our Paul example. Paul became all things to all people. Did he become a beach ball? Uh, was he uh, a cosplayer? Was he wearing, wearing a Sailor Moon outfit? Uh, <laughs> you know, that's what cosplayers do. And did he become a prostitute? He, because he came all things to all people, right? But all things is typically qualified. When, when you see that phrase and, and Paul says that God put all things under his feet and then, then Paul specifies, he clarifies and says, when I say all things, I, I, I don't mean uh, God, God's not under Jesus's feet or anything like that. He's just meaning all, all creation basically. And so typically the phrase is qualified. Does he prove that this all things is all things to ever happen? It doesn't. He doesn't. It's a massive assumption on the text. This is the problem with what Arthur Hagland calls verse theology, where you grab one text, you pull it out of context, and then you assign your own definite meaning to. Where language doesn't work like that, language is flexible, and the same short phrase can have various interpretations. Various competing, and all of them, they're, they're both competing, and they're probable, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, the, the interpretation I offered here was that uh, the things that in a nutshell, the things that God works, he does after the counsel of his will. So God basically consults himself in a sense to figure out what it is that he wants to do. And then he does it. Right. So, so he, he has this, he has a statement. This must be everything to ever exists as the two prior verses show. I, I didn't read that wrong. That, um, uh, and you know, spelling errors are okay. It's not. I'm not making fun of any spelling errors or anything like that, or grammatical word choice. But let's go to Ephesians uh, 111 because he doesn't quote two verses that seem to be pretty critical. And it is uh, what he's trying to argue here. Yeah, typically you want to quote everything that has relevance to so, the point you're making. So before we read them, can we assume that once we read these two verses, there's going to be a statement in there that says. Everything that ever exists. You know, I've never read Ephesians, so I would have no idea. <laughs> okay. Like that whole book, I have I've never read any of those verses, so it's going to be a surprise to me. Okay. Because I I'm definitely up. am not familiar with what verse nine and and ten say. We'll be surprised together then. Okay. Okay. Nine and ten. Having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together all in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth in him. Okay. That's that oh, this this must be everything to ever exist. I'll, I'll correct his grammar there. As the two prior verses show. So those two verses, nine and ten, I'll read it again. So this is this is showing that. Verse 11 is about all things to ever exist. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. So I don't know why he included nine in that. Do you no. see anything in nine that proves that? I got nothing. 
Okay, uh, Ephesians 1.10. In that the dispensation of the fullness of times, I'm reading the New King James, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Is that everything to ever exist? Well, it does say all things. Yeah, but it's talking about all things that currently exist, right? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> oh. oh, man. So, oh, no. The assumption is what? That everything that has ever existed or with will ever exist has been uh, gathered in Christ? How does that work? History unfolds by the sovereignty of God. Oh, I, those verses definitely definitely prove that somehow. Um, we we don't have a commentary on it. We we don't. He doesn't explain no. how. No. Because I'm not so, seeing it. <laughs> no. Also, he switched word order here too. So where it says he writes from eternity, has purposed and worked all things according to his will. So if we read that, what we would expect the text to read would be been predestined according to him who purposes and works all things according to his will, right? That would be the text that we would expect to read from what he has written, but that's not what it says. It says, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. There's no mention there of him purposing all things. There's a purpose that he has and then works those things after the counsel of his will. Yeah, so it's not clear all things. If I eat all things according to my diet, that doesn't mean I like eat cats or anything like that. That means what about uh, cats every that throw up on carpets. Yeah, the, the, the cat. I should eat that cat. Dude, yeah, I, I would definitely cook and eat that cat. I've never had cat before that I know of. Maybe I have, but uh, I'll add that to my list of meats. But anyways, anyways, the point is, don't eat cat. Don't eat your pets, people. That I think that might be illegal. Do it on the down low. <laughs> but anyways, so there, there's a lot of assumptions that go in here. Let's see. Yeah. He works all things after the counsel of the will. What is all things? I think that most naturally refers to all the things that he does. He does with forethought. He does yeah. with with uh, rationality. He doesn't do things arbitrarily. That's, that's right. how I'm reading this. God's not capricious. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually what's going on here is he's trying to explain to people that God's just doesn't God's not arbitrary. And the Calvinists will say God is super arbitrary. He just picks people randomly and and for no particular reason he enlightens some and not others. That God acts capriciously. Right. So this might actually be a proof text against Calvinism. It's it's close. It's this statement here where it says this is said against a pagan background where you could resist the God's wills. I'm going to state equivocally here that as a human, I don't think that in Greek mythology, you can really resist the God's wills. I think that don't they sort of do what they want for the most part? Yeah, typically in when you when you when you think about Greek fatalism and uh, so back to the cultural context of the time, laymen might have been uh, Greek pantheists, but a lot of their scholarly people, their philosophers, their their high intellect type people, they would more be monotheists. They'd be more of the Platonists, the Stoics, the Epicureans, people like that. They they wouldn't believe in necessarily the pantheon of Greek gods that you read in Homer. It'd be the layman taking Homer seriously. But Greek fatalism, 
tended to be this idea that fate is set and not even the gods could thwart fate. And so if, if you're prophesied to, to kill your dad and then uh, marry your mom over here, then, you know, you might try to thwart it. You might go out of your way. You might try to kill the son so the son doesn't kill you eventually. The son might uh, go out of his way to avoid this prophecy too. But, but everything circles around. And there's clever ways that things end up happening. Maybe maybe he accidentally kills his dad on the road and then accidentally becomes king and then accidentally marries his old mom over there. Or maybe he he, he joins up with that uh, town and he accidentally kills his dad with the javelin. There's, there's competing stories of how Greek fatalism works. But it's not that you could re, uh, thwart the will of the fates. They, they, don't, they don't have that idea. No, even... Even in some of those books, the gods themselves are trapped by fate. Yeah. You know? So this, there's not a situation where I don't, pagans are thwarting some will for their... I mean, I don't even understand where he got that from. But um, I don't think that this Ephesians verse is in reference to Greek fatalism. I, I, just, I just don't no. think that's what this is responding to. I think it's responding to current cultural problems people thinking that god might might backtrack or god might not follow through on what he promised sure let's skip down in his article some he's got more text yeah i mean you guys anyone could go read his original article there's a link at the god is open page he writes this one downfall of open theism and there are many and now he's on his philosophical uh points is that it leads to skepticism about God's moral authority. <laughs> well, do, do you know any open theists who are skeptical about God's moral authority? No, the opposite, in fact. Yeah, to wit, if God doesn't know everything, then he cannot be the source of moral reality. What? I don't understand. First of all, the conclusion doesn't follow from the premise. There's nothing that says that the source of moral reality must have all knowledge it's possible my daughter while she's not the source of moral reality she knows it's not good to kill people she doesn't know everything so if you're gonna even if if you're gonna disseminate if you are the source of moral reality and you're gonna disseminate to somebody else what is good and what is evil you don't have to know everything at best all you have to know is what makes evil things evil and good things good yeah i think he's missing a step in his logic here that's yes that's for sure <laughs> so, so so for that reason I'm sure that there's a point here that he's trying to make, but I can't, I can't, I can't put the piece in there for him. I don't know what it is. It's an underpants gnome situation. Step one, collect <laughs> underpants. Step two, step three, profit. There it is. Yeah. yeah. So it's he says uh, God's predetermination of the future is a precondition for of His absolute moral authority. No. Uh, Not you, at all. you have to prove that. I don't. I don't buy it. And if it's unproven, uh, so so let's take any position that's not a Calvinist, where God doesn't predetermine the future. So to to the person who wrote this article, and I don't think that the sire wrote this section. Um, so to those people, Arminians, God is not the absolute moral authority in the universe because He doesn't predetermine everything. How do you go from being the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong to a necessary condition of that being your predetermining of all future events? So are you saying that in order for God to be the judge of all that is right and wrong, 
he has to predetermine what everyone's going to do. How how do those correlate? I don't understand how you get there either. So okay, he says he says let me explain. We'll, we'll read it. So this will be good then. Suppose that God has not predetermined every event in history. Instead, indeterminism is the case. The future, I think he meant to put is, the future is undecided and yet to be discovered by God just as much as man. In that case, there are historical events and so facts in general that find their ontological source outside of God. Let's, let's try to make sense of that statement. So, God just as much as man. In that case, there are historical events and so facts in general that find their ontological source outside of God. So, ontological would be source of being outside of God, I guess. Is that what he's trying to say? So, there are historical events that find their source of being outside of God. Right. Okay. These facts will inform God as much as man, adding information to God's bank of knowledge just as much as it teaches his creatures. Because the so, future, oh. So the assumption here is, I think what the guy's trying to say is that if there's an event that God doesn't predetermine, it has its source of uh, obtaining outside of God. So when these events occur, they're going to inform God just as much as man. So he's trying to come up with a mechanism using a lot of language that's not necessary to basically say God learned stuff because the things that happened didn't originate from him. Right. Because the future is not determined by God with his moral wisdom, and in fact adds to his wisdom in general, is fair to ask how we as human know God will not come to discover that his moral opinions are herefore too mistaken, or at the very least, that he has learned a new and better moral code for humanity incompatible with Christianity in practice. Okay. So, what we've done here is invented an alternate reality or some potential future where God learns that there is a moral code higher than the one that he operates under. And the reason that he learns this is because he didn't predetermine everything that happens and from some source of being outside of himself, he has gained, so to speak, the ultimate moral knowledge, the ultimate moral code. So uh, I'm right away. Uh, I'm thinking that this doesn't. This is not. If but pretend everything he says is true, this is not a problem unique to open theism. It's also a problem for Calvinists. You know, Calvinists. It's a, I'll it's a problem for literally everyone that believes in God. Everyone that believes in God. Let me explain. The Calvinists, they'll always say, oh, if God could change, we can't be sure of our salvation. Well, well, in your guys' Calvinistic belief, God leads people on thinking that they're Calvinists and then dumps them at the last minute before they die. So they live their entire life thinking they were Calvinists, but then they end up, up uh, being non-Christians, and this is all to his greatest glory. So he, he regularly misleads people into believing things that are untruths. So... If that's the case, then how can you think that anything you know about morality or think about morality is not God just lying through his teeth to you? Right. You can't. And this isn't even really a problem for us, I don't think, because we're, we're creating a, a hypothetical universe, basically, some world that may or may not even possibly exist. We don't know and then inputting a set of facts into it and then getting an output. 
So to say that at some point in the future, because God is not the originator of all events that take place in the universe, at some point in the future, he might discover some moral code higher than himself. And because of this potential world existing, uh, he's not the actual moral authority in the actual world. That's the that's a huge leap to make. I could invent potential universes from here till the end of the year where the God of Calvinism doesn't work or has some sort of deficiency. And I can't use those as arguments against Calvinism because that's faulty logic. That's not how you, that's not how you argue a position. You don't make up universes. You so, know? so guess, guess what fallacy that it's called. Is it the universe making up fallacy? No, it's, it's literally called the moralistic fallacy. And so basically the moralistic fallacy is uh, what we consider right and wrong. You know, I, I think it's terrible that people die of starvation in this world and therefore people don't die of starvation in this world. You know, that's the moralistic fallacy. It's confusing what we want to be true with actual reality. And so what he's doing here in this argument, he's like, imagine this world where morality can change. That's a problem. And so we can't believe in that world. <laughs> I don't because I don't live in it. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, right. Okay, uh, our our valuation of whether things are desirable or not, or whether things should be or not, doesn't change what is reality. So, At all. So how can he maintain this 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 supposition? Let's let's say everything he says is true. This is an accurate way to look at the world, and uh, let's say in reality that God's morality changes. You know, in the Talmud. It's interesting because they have Moses teaching God morality. Um, but Moses says to God that when we enter the promised land, that uh, we should actually open up dialogue with our enemies. And then uh, if they submit to us, then we should let them live. And God says, oh, you have taught me what's right from wrong. You know, this is Talmudic text in, in Jewish tradition, uh, post-Jesus, in which God learns morality. So let's say that world is true. He would say, that's terrible. We can't believe it. Uh, it's not an argument. It's not an. No. Was it uh, Stephen Molinex? He's always like, "That's not an argument. You're not making an argument." No. So this is just all fallacious from start to finish here. Right. It's it's, it's confusing what ought to be with what should be, or it's it's confusing what this is confusing what ought to be with what is. Right. And uh, it's 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 all fallacy, and that a lot of a lot of philosophical uh, proofs just boil down to the moralistic fallacy. It's irrationality. So what what is wrong? Why can't a universe exist without uh, axiomatic moral code? It, is 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 there a reason that there needs to be an axiomatic moral code? No. Yeah, maybe maybe the universe operates on more of a practical moral code that sure. uh, God hates immorality. God hates wickedness. God hates sin. And so God punishes those people who commit those acts. Although there's not an axiomatic code that. So are you to say then that if someone comes, a, comes along and says to God, well, no, actually evil and sin is a good thing. You should allow it that he's going to be like, okay. Well, we could we could pretend that universe hypothetically. Let's say that's the universe we live in. That doesn't determine the truth value of that universe. We don't reject that no. universe because 
that's a thing that can happen. But I, I tend to think that we understand individuals, we know individuals based on their moral character. And that's what God appeals to in Isaiah, the, the same passages that he appeals to for for uh, <laughs> for God's knowledge of all future events, which we, we actually went over and none of his proof texts proved what he's trying to prove. But that passage is all about God's moral character, that God says things and God follows through, that God is consistent, that God acts in the best interest of his people and he he's he has consistency you can trust god because of what we know about who he is and what his character is yeah and you find that in the bible all the time like you said i mean god is always saying look at the things i've done look at how i've treated you look at how i've responded to you because of this you know that you can trust me for him it sounds like he wants to he wants to replace knowledge of god's character and trust in who he is with God having knowledge of all things, like to say, well, I can serve the Lord and I can be a Christian and I can trust God because he knows everything that will ever happen. Whereas I would say, I can trust the Lord and I want to be a Christian because throughout time in my life, personally, and in a lot of other people's lives, I have seen that God is good and loving and kind and just and he's faithful. And that's the kind of God that I choose to worship and I want to follow. So, so the Bible is pretty big. Uh, just kind of shifting a little bit. Uh, I wrote a book, and the book was uh, 120,000 words. The Bible is more like uh, 800,000 words. Do you see anywhere in the Bible arguing like this? I haven't. I, I don't Mary. see it either. I don't mm -hmm. I don't think this is a biblical, um, it's not a biblical concern. It's not biblical Christianity. It's not an argument that the prophets ever make to prove God's morality. There's people in the Bible that think that God shirks his duty. There's people who think that God violates uh, his responsibilities, that God commits evil. Uh, Jeremiah says, basically, God, you, you have raped me. And uh, you, you see verses that say, God, you, you have turned your face from me. Your righteous suffer, your righteous die. There, there's no appeals. There's no counter appeals against these people that read like this this reasoning you don't see no. it in the bible no so what they that <laughs> go for it they always appeal to his character he always appeals to his character yeah so what that does is signals to me that insofar as our author friend mr sire here insofar as this is how he argues that's not christian that's pagan all of this is pagan reasoning. It's pagan <laughs> philosophy, not biblical philosophy. He's departing from the Bible. For sure. No one thought like that. No one argued like that. They had plenty of opportunity to. There are plenty of individuals that they interacted with that they could have used these arguments for. You never find people people in the Bible, Israel, they thought God couldn't see what they did. did. They said, God can't see. God doesn't listen. God doesn't know what we're doing. We're going to go sacrifice to these idols. God's not watching. The response was never, well, God in his ontological nature has has uh, pre-known all events from eternity past. And it was identical to his nature and ungenerated knowledge. And he had all true propositions from it. you. They don't argue like that. They, they, not are, not, they are not Calvinists. They're not uh, Augustinian theologians. They, they don't think God has access to all predetermined events from all eternity or anything like that. They argue like open theists. They say, no, God knows what you're doing. God can see what you're doing. God watches you. 
God yeah. sees what's going on. Every single one of them, every single writer of the Bible is an open theist. They argue like open theists. They, they think like open theists. That's their worldview. And there's, there's no indication of what he is presenting here. No. Maybe so, he doesn't have a Bible. I don't know. So, so what I'll do in debates, because uh, the, the debates that are more interesting to me is not these philosophical back and forth. So oh, let's create this world in our mind and see what the best world is. That's fairly uninteresting to me. And so if I'm arguing about the Bible, I'll focus on the text and I'll say, here's what the text says. And uh, here's why this is what the text means. And they'll respond back with something like this. If this was true, then this thing also would be true, which I don't like. And then I'll respond with this. Uh, yeah, I, it cracks. I cracked myself up. I, th I think I'm a little bit funny. I'll say, well, you don't have to be a Christian. There's there's other religions you can look into. <laughs> right. Well, you don't, you don't have to believe the Bible, man. I mean, that's your decision. Because what that does, first of all, it forces them back to the text. It, it stops that whole, let's get off the text and start talking philosophy that they want to do. And let's talk about what the best philosophy is. And, and secondly, it points out that they're ignoring the text and they're possibly going against the text. And so they are now on the defensive to prove that their philosophy that they just set out is compatible with the text that we're talking about. The burden of proof is now shifted. So I do that for multiple reasons. Uh, number one, I don't want to talk about there, this this stuff. It's like, oh, God is God's morality might change. What, what are you talking about? It, what are you talking about? You, you, you drive all sorts of... Uh, assumptions and you drive all sorts of value judgments. That's another thing they do. They, they, they say this would be bad. Well, that's your value judgment. I don't agree with that value judgment. Other people don't agree with your value judgment. It's you're just giving me subjective opinions. I don't really care about subjective opinions. Not interesting. Let's go talk about the text. Yeah. And so it's uh, oh go. This this is bad philosophy too. These are not good philosophical arguments. There's holes. The logic doesn't follow necessarily. The premises are not laid out correctly. I mean, if the attempt here is philosophical argumentation, it's just not good. God might lose. That's his next paragraph. God might lose. Yeah, God, God loses all the time. And uh, that's actually a pretty big theme of the Bible is God's continual losing streak with Israel, where God says, what more could I have done? I've done everything. I built a wine press expecting good grapes, uh, but but they never produced. What gives? What gives? I'm going to destroy all you guys. And there's all sorts of times in the Bible where God gets so frustrated to the point of destroying all of Israel because everything he tries doesn't work. So God right. continually loses. It's a theme of the Bible. It is a major plot point in the history of the biblical text. And it's funny to me. He's like, God might lose. Yeah. That's what the Bible describes. If you don't want to be a Christian, there's other religions I could point you to. Uh, I could help you out. If you want to be a Neoplatonist, there seems to be a thriving Neoplatonist uh, religion today. There's there's Gnostics. There's Gnostics that still exist. There's there's what? Manichaeans. You know, these people exist. You could go be one of those guys. But uh, what, you, what you're arguing here is not biblical theology. And no. it's, it doesn't take into account the biblical data. All right, uh, we're already at about a little over two hours, and it's going on. And it seems that our friend here, the sire, uh, Joe Sabo, just found this out. We kind of just cut past that part. But Joe Sabo, what, what are your thoughts? He he did what? So he definitely edited this. 
after my response and I don't know if he read my response first and then edited it or edited it at some point in between me reading and responding and now, but there's a significant amount of this article from, I mean, significant changes. He, he added a lot. He didn't. And to be fair, he didn't change anything that I responded to, but he did add, probably four paragraphs at the end that I didn't read and I wasn't aware of. And some of those paragraphs were what we were just talking about. So that was the first time that we'd seen any of that stuff. So even higher than this, it seems like. So um, it would have been been better to do that in a separate article if he wanted someone to read it and respond to it. And that would have been, well, I'm not responding to anything more that he writes, but someone maybe would have. Oh, man. So someone's going to respond to all this uh, philosophy. Okay. If anyone wants to take on that task, uh, go for it. But we've already covered a couple of his points, his, his brand new points. Yeah. And we'll leave it at that. And, uh, you know, it could be the shotgun proof text thing where if you look at the first point and it's a logical fallacy, then ignore the rest. Prove to, prove to me that your concept is actually a real concept. And then we can move from there. All right, we're, but we're going to call it quits. I have to thank Joe Sabo for two and a half hours of his time. And uh, he's been a great help to us tonight, helping us read and understand this article. Joe Sabo, any uh, closing words? Yeah, edit this to make me look good, man. Yeah, I'll, I'll add more beard hair. All right, excellent. <laughs> and a hat, a fedora. All right, do it. Make that the thumbnail that you see is me with a beard and a hat and a fedora. My lady. And then what, what will we call it? We'll call this uh, God determines, uh, God doesn't determine cat puke or something like that. It's not about cat vomit, comma, stupid. <laughs> it's not a give up. Cat. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. There was someone asking for podcast name ideas, and I threw out theological diarrhea. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> it'd be a good, good podcast name. But all right, we'll cut there for tonight. If anyone has any questions or comments, uh, post a response on YouTube or start a, start a thread on God is Open on our Facebook group. Or or just uh, do a video response to all these philosophical things. Uh, that would be, be fun and, and time-consuming. Oh, $3 but, uh, to the first person that does a video response to all of those philosophical complaints. You got $3 for that? I'll give $3 for that. Uh, I'll, I'll give $3 too. So it'll be six, $6. It'll be $6 for like two hours of work. So it's more of like unpaid intern wages, but <laughs> it works. All right. Thanks everyone for listening and we will see you guys later.